0: I'm back. <laughs> you may be wondering, what well, Jennifer, what are you doing? You've never preached two weeks in a row. I know, right? Um, Brian is unfortunately sick. And he uh, is watching this at home, I'm sure. Hi, Brian. <laughs> get better, get well soon. We're all thinking of you. Please pray for Brian this week. He's got a very sore throat and a cough. Not COVID. So, um, Yeah, thank you, Lauren. Thank you for leading us again. Uh, Lauren and Haley led us on Wednesday night and that was the highlight of my week and probably for some of you as well. What a wonderful time we had together, worshipping God with the kids, with us, I loved it and I hope we will do that again soon, but maybe not too soon, we'll let you take a break first. (laughs) So I am going to continue on, I guess, uh, following from my sermon last week. And so if you remember, we looked at the greatest commandment in the Bible. And if you remember it, I'd like you to say it with me, okay? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Good, good. Many of you know it, even if you weren't here. So we were reminded last week that Jesus wants it all, all our heart, soul, and strength. And he deserves it all, 100% of what we are, and everything we have, and everything we say and do. Jesus wants it all, and not just whatever little percentage we may have decided to give him. So if we call Jesus our Lord and Savior, then we belong to him fully, and and as a result, we have to give up our own desires for our lives and focus on what he commands, what he wants for us. Uh, This is what Paul wrote in Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now that's a pretty brutal image, a tough way of putting it here, to say I have been crucified, I am dead. Now Paul is not saying that We no longer have any identity or personality when we follow Christ. What he's saying is that our selfishness has to die. Everything in us that wants our own comfort and our own safety and our own happiness, that part has to die and be replaced with the desire for what Christ wants. we just saying, thy will be done. And that's exactly it. We don't live to do our own will anymore. We live to do the will of God. Now, to kill my own wants and desires and replace them with what God wants is not easy. That is a messy, painful process because our sinful nature is rebellious. It does not give up without a fight. We argue with God, we disobey, we cry and we plead and we fuss about our discomfort constantly. Maybe you don't, I do. <laughs> So this metaphor that Paul uses of crucifixion, of being dead to ourselves, he doesn't use that flippantly. He's serious. And I'm not going to go into the details of how painful crucifixion actually is, but suffice it to say, to die to ourselves and crucify our own selfishness is awful for us. It hurts, and everything in us is going to resist. But we have to do it. If we're disciples of Jesus Christ, we have to do it. Just like the people who have cancer have to kill those cancer cells in their bodies. And the chemo may make them feel wretched for a while, but if they want to be healthy, the cancer has to be killed. Our sin and selfishness is that cancer that we have to kill in order for us to live the way God wants us to. So how on earth are we going to get to the place where we want what God wants? Where Our thoughts and desires are actually his thoughts and desires. We can never do this in our own strength. We're never going to have the willpower for this. It has to be the work of the Holy Spirit within us. He has to change our hearts. And that's why we're seeking revival as a church. That's the title of this whole series that we're in right now, Seeking Revival. We are praying for God to soften our hearts and help us to want what he wants. Now, there's a story in the Bible of a man who refused to let his heart be softened. He did not want what God wanted, even though he was one of God's prophets. He's a really fascinating character. He's one of the most well-known characters in the Bible, and he's even got his own VeggieTales movie. For those of you who enjoy a good VeggieTales movie, it's my favorite one, actually. Can anybody guess who it is? Yeah, you got it, Lauren. You've seen enough Veggie Tales to know. Jonah, the prophet Jonah. He was quite a guy. Now, if you've never read the story of Jonah, I encourage you to look it up in your Bible or on your phone. Um, In the Pew Bible in front of you, it's page 897. I checked that for you. Although the page numbers are right in the center of the Pew Bible, so it makes it a little tricky. But page 897, okay, but it can be hard to find it because it's only for short chapters. It's a really easy read. You can read his whole story in just a few minutes. But man, there's a lot of stuff packed in there. Most kids in Sunday school already know the first part of Jonah's story, and many of you do too. But for those of you who might not, I'm going to quickly summarize what happens to Jonah. So God tells Jonah to go and preach to the city of Nineveh and tell them that they have been wicked and they have offended God and that he is going to destroy them. But Jonah hates the Ninevites, and so he doesn't want to go there. He goes the opposite way. He gets on a boat going to Tarshish instead. And a huge storm comes up while the boat is at sea. Everyone in the boat is about to drown, and they're asking why this has happened. And so Jonah speaks up and admits it's his fault because he's running away from God. And he says they should throw him overboard, which they don't want to do, but eventually they have to do because they're all going to drown. So they throw him into the sea, and a huge fish sometimes called a whale, we don't really know, a fish of some kind, swallows him and he's in the belly of the fish for three days. So of course, he repents and says he'll do what God told him to do. So the fish spits him out on the shore and off he goes to Nineveh and he learned his lesson about the consequences of disobeying God. That makes a very nice tidy ending if we stop right there. And so we often do. It's got a nice moral to the story, right, at that point. But there is more to Jonah's story that isn't as exciting, but it's just as important. Jonah goes and preaches to the Ninevites, and they actually repent of their sins and ask for God's forgiveness, and God gives it, he spares them, and then Jonah gets really mad. That's the part I want us to read today. So turn with me to Jonah chapter 3, and we're going to start at verse 6. This is right after Jonah has preached to the Ninevites and told them that they are wicked and God's judgment is coming. So 3 verse 6. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, Taste anything, do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now Lord, take away my life for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. He's wanting fire to fall from heaven like it did on Sodom and Gomorrah. So he's watching. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered, When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? Jonah's quite a guy, isn't he? He's just miserable. He does what God wants, but only because he has to. And we aren't told the outcome of Jonah's story. The book just ends with this question from God for us to ponder. I read a really amazing insight about Jonah last week that I want to share with you. And you know I've told you before that when something in the Bible is repeated, it's usually important, just like in that greatest commandment, we get the word all three times, all our heart, all our soul, all our strength. Well, there's something repeated here in God's comments to Jonah uh, that I never really thought about before. And that's the word concern. God compares how Jonah is concerned about this plant with how God is concerned about the city of Nineveh. So I want to read you this quote. It's from Mark Buchanan, his book, Your God is Too Safe. He says this. What is God mostly interested in? Strangely, anticlimactically, it has to do with concerns, with what our hearts fix on with what stirs us in the depths and makes us rise to the heights. What are we concerned about? Is it what God is concerned about? But both Jonah's disobedience and his obedience rise up from the same source, from what he is concerned about. He's concerned about himself. He's looking for the path of least resistance, the way of greatest convenience. He'll do whatever he must, obey, disobey, go to Nineveh, flee to Tarshish to get God off his back. The last thing Jonah wants is for God's concerns to be his own. So when Jesus said that the greatest commandment was to love God with everything we are, all our heart, soul, and strength, don't you think that's going to mean that God's concerns should be our own concerns? And the Bible tells us that what concerns God the most is that we have loving relationships. A loving relationship with God himself and loving relationships with other people. In fact, the love for other people is so important to God that Jesus tells us it's the second greatest commandment. Even though no one asked. him. So last week I read the greatest commandment in its context in Deuteronomy. And today I want to read the context in which Jesus quoted it. This is Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. So, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, one group of Jewish experts, the Pharisees got together, another group of Jewish experts. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind this is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments so don't don't read too much into the fact that jesus says mind here instead of strength because the greatest commandment is found in many different places in the bible and in some places it just says heart and soul And when Jesus says it in Mark and in Luke, he says heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, But the point is the same, that we must love God with everything that we are, every part of ourselves, and we must love others. Because God loves people. He created every single one of us. And he's concerned about every single one of us. He's big enough for that. So he longs for us to love him back of our own free will. And if we love him, then we're going to be concerned about the other people that he loves and that he created. People that each reflect the image of God in their own unique way. We can find little glimpses of God's image to love in anybody. Jonah did not understand that. The Ninevites were just his enemies, and he could not accept that God loved them. He didn't allow his heart to be changed so that God's concern for people could become his concern. God still used him, but Jonah was more miserable in his obedience than he was in his disobedience. He was happily asleep on that boat in the middle of the storm. (laughs) He could have been happy about the 120,000 people that were saved, and he could have been grateful and in awe of God's compassion, but he wasn't. He was bitter. I don't want to live like that, do you? Just consumed with selfishness, with anger, and with only concerned about my comfort? If we are going to truly love God with everything that we are, our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then loving other people is going to have to become more important to us than anything else, even more important than our own wants and needs. We will be willing to sacrifice what's important to us in order to serve others the way that Jesus did. Think about all the sacrifices that Jesus made. He gave up everything because he loved people so much. He gave up his residence in heaven. I wouldn't want to leave heaven and come here. (laughs) He gave up his limitless power and became confined in a human body. He gave up human longings like marriage and children. He didn't get to have that. He gave up his career so that he could be a traveling preacher and go around to places that would reject him so he could tell them about the kingdom of God. He gave up his reputation and his own rights and finally his very life, and none of that was easy. But all of it was for people other than himself. It didn't benefit him in any earthly sense. He loved others as much as he loved himself. In fact, a lot more than he loved himself. And as Christians, we often say that we want to be more like Jesus. Do we really know what that means? We're saying we want to give up our lives to serve others. That we're going to be dead and Christ is going to live in and through us. Our selfishness. We're going to crucify that. We're saying, if we want to be like Jesus, that we want to live a life of sacrificial love for others that we're gonna follow the Apostle Paul's instructions in uh, Philippians 2, where he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. There's no way any of us can do this naturally. We can't even make ourselves want to do it, if we're honest. All we naturally think about are our own interests. Right? Our human nature says, me, 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 all the time, just like Jonah. So if we're going to get our priorities straight, loving God, loving others, and leaving our own desires for last, then we need revival. We need the Holy Spirit of God to convict us of our selfishness and show us the ways that we exalt and protect ourselves above others. And often we can't even see it. And if we can, we don't really want to change. We need the Holy Spirit's help. So in, in spite of the pain, in spite of how hard it is to crucify our own flesh, it will bring us so much joy in the end. It really will. Deeper joy than having our own comfort will ever bring us. How much joy? Think, just imagine this, these scenes in your mind, okay, of Jesus. How much joy... Do you think that Jesus felt when he was able to meet the needs of the people around him, the people that he loved? So when he healed somebody and he saw them leaping and jumping and praising God, what did he feel in that moment? That amazing joy, right? And when he fed the 5,000 and he saw all the little children stuffing their faces with the bread that he provided for them or when he looked over and saw Mary and Martha's expressions of just wonder and awe as their brother Lazarus came walking out of the tomb the joy he would have felt at serving others there's so much joy in serving one another and in sacrificing for others if we have a heart like God that loves them as much as we love ourselves And we don't have to do miracles like Jesus to experience the joy of loving and helping someone, of meeting their needs, whether it's a physical or an emotional or a spiritual need. Everyone has needs around us that we can meet when we're filled with God's compassion and love for them. We just have to pay attention. We have to actually be concerned about them rather than focused on our own concerns. And one of the most important things that we can do is to find gentle and creative ways to tell people that we love that Jesus is alive and real. We need to share our stories of how much Jesus has done for us and how he's changed us. Because if I love someone as much as I love myself, how could I keep the good news of the gospel from them? If I believe salvation is only found in Christ... And if I believe that it's only in a relationship with him that we're going to find purpose and strength and peace in life, and I say that I love someone but I don't tell them that, then I don't love them as much as I love myself. I don't. I might like them, and I might love my own comfortable and relaxed relationship with them. I might love that there's no pressure or awkwardness between us more than I actually want what's best for them. So if I love God and I love my neighbor as myself, then there's no escaping the fact that I need to tell others that Jesus loves them and wants a relationship with them. So our greatest concern as a church, as White Rock Baptist Church, should be how can we work together to tell our community that Jesus loves them and invite them to meet him. Our words and our actions And every possible way that we can think of should be saying loud and clear that we love our neighbors as ourselves. So what are we most concerned about? As a church, individually as well, but also as a church, what are we concerned about? Do our events and our budget and our actions and our words, both in the church and outside of the church, prove that we love people? Or are we, sometimes like Jonah, most concerned about the leaves over our own heads? Could it be that we're running away from something God has commanded us to do? I hope not. But even if we are, God's compassion and love still reaches us too. Thank God. He is concerned about us, about each one of us and about our church and our community and he's not going to give up on us. His love and patience with us just goes on and on. It's ridiculous in a good way. So I'm going to close with another quote from Mark Buchanan, okay? Thank God I read that book this week. (laughs) So he says this, the real puzzle of Jonah is this, why is God so deeply concerned about not just Nineveh, but this man, Jonah, this sulking, griping, stingy, self-absorbed little man, why him? Why would God pursue him to the ends of the earth, to the bottom of the sea, to the outskirts of Nineveh? Why would God keep chasing a man who flees him? Why doesn't God just honor Jonah's wish and leave him alone? Because God is too concerned. He's concerned about you this morning, and he's concerned about me. And every single one of us is the focus of God's attention and concern. He loves us so much. He's forgiven us so much. And he's been so patient with us. So I want to encourage you. Let's bring joy to God by loving him back with everything that we are and then loving the people that he loves. And when we can't do it, let's ask him for help when we just don't have it in us to care about someone else anymore, we need to pray together for more of the Holy Spirit to fill us. We need him every moment of every day if we're going to be disciples of Christ and follow these two greatest commandments that he gave us. We need revival as a church. So let's pray together for that. Lord, you are good, and what you ask of us is good. It may not feel good, but, Lord, it is what is best. So help us, Lord. Help us to kill our selfishness. Help us to choose to be concerned about the interests of others more than we're concerned about ourselves. Lord, every day we're gonna continue to hear in our minds that cry of me, 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 me. But, Lord, may it get fainter and fainter as we focus on you. Lord, please, help us as a church to be faithful to these two great commandments to love you with everything that we are and to love our neighbors as ourselves lord within this church i know that satan is going to bring division and conflict and frustration between christians because that is what he always does when we seek revival lord unify us by your spirit that we will see one another as brothers and sisters in our family. Lord, that we can't afford to be separated from or angry with. Lord, may we please find ways to resolve conflict and to be unified in our mission. May we not be distracted by any drama between us that we aren't concerned about our community and that our neighbors and our coworkers and our family members who don't know you. Lord, these are your concerns. So change our hearts, God. We can't do it, but we ask you to do it. And we trust you. We know you're working. Even when we can't see it or feel it, you will be working, and you will change us in time. We ask for your help today, Lord. Amen.